Episode 18, Qing Empire, the most successful conquering dynasty. Hi, and welcome to Stuff You Missed in Chinese History. Today, we'll talk about the very last imperial dynasty in Chinese history, the Great Qing. As I just said, emperors of the Qing dynasty ordered Mongols to call them Bogd Khan instead of His Majesty the Emperor. In Tibet, the emperor was described as representing the greatly wise Manjushri Bodhisattva, known in China as Wanshu. He's depicted as riding a lion in his ashram at Mount Wutai in Shanxi, one of the four sacred mountains of China. His name means gentle glory in Sanskrit. Why did the Manchu emperors in the Qing dynasty treat the Mongols and Tibetans this way? The answer lies in how they ruled the country. Most historians agree the Qing dynasty was the dynasty most successful at conquering. Regarding the definition of conquering dynasty, we said in a previous episode that it must bridge nomadic and agricultural civilizations. So why was the Qing dynasty the most successful conquering dynasty? The success lies in its ability to govern various ethnic groups according to their cultural characteristics. For example, in the most populated Han area, the Manchu rulers following the Ming dynasty's management system keeping the cabinet in six ministries in the imperial court. Later, the Yongzheng emperors set up Junji Chu, or the Council of State, the highest central government institution in the Qing dynasty, which strengthened the system favored by the emperors of the Ming dynasty. Here's another example. The Qing dynasty inherited the imperial examination system as a way to select talent. It paid more attention to quotas among various regions than the Ming dynasty did. In addition, the Qing dynasty subscribed to the theory of Chengju, Neo-Confucianism, and the method of literary inquisition to tame the Han people. By that time, the Qing dynasty was thorough, much more so than the Ming dynasty was. In order to rule the Han, the Manchu adopted the co-governance of officials and gentry. This meant they relied on local squires to manage local affairs. Both moral and social power made up for the lack of ruling strength. The Yongzheng Emperor also implemented a system called High Salaries to Nourish Integrity. This was to avoid the defects during the Ming Dynasty, where some officials took bribes to supplement their income. The Qing Dynasty's strategies were different for ethnic minorities aside from the Han. For example, the Qing Dynasty and Mongolia formed an alliance long before Manchuria conquered the country. The means of their alliance included marrying the Manchu clan and Mongolian princes, granting of various noble ties to the Mongol rulers, and recognizing Lamaism as the official religion of Mongolia. For Tibet, the Qing dynasty's ruling strategy was different. Since the Kanxi Emperor, the Qing government had confirmed the status of the two living Buddhas in Tibet, namely the Dalai Lama and the Panchen Lama. The Qianlong Emperor introduced the Golden Urn, also known as drawing lots from a golden vase ceremony, to select high offices within Tibetan Buddhism. The golden urn is a bottle with a coat made from five colors with a tube inserted inside. There are five ivory lots in the tube to decide the reincarnation fate for Buddhas and Hutuktu. To prevent Mongolian and Tibetan nobles from manipulating the reincarnation of the living Buddhas, the Qing government issued two golden urns in the 57th year of the Qianlong Emperor, that is, in 1792. Today, one urn is stored in the Lama Temple in Beijing, the other is in the Jokong Temple in Lhasa. Since then, the government has sent representatives to supervise the drawing lots from a golden vase ceremony to determine the reincarnated soul boys of the Dalai Lama and the Panchen Lama. 
The living Buddhas in Tibet are reincarnated from generation to generation. Tibet at that time implemented a management system called the combination of politics and religion. Through these policies and methods, the Qing dynasty completed the political management of Tibet. The Yongzheng Emperor also promoted a policy of abolishing the system of appointing ethnic minority headmen and bringing the minority areas under a unified provincial administration. This policy was mainly aimed at ethnic minorities, such as Hubei, Hunan, Yunnan, Guizhou, Guangxi, and Sichuan. The leaders of these ethnic minorities were called headmen or chieftains. The Yongzheng Emperor changed the jurisdiction of these chieftains to officials appointed by the central government. In these ways, the Qing government managed various regions and cultures through different management systems. You are listening to Some You Missed in Chinese History, written and produced by Zhu Wang, presented by Patrick Fanny. However, the emperors of the Qing dynasty followed the customs of their Manchu ancestors. They went to Chengde every year and built a huge Mulan paddock in the north of Zhuhou, where they gathered allies from Mongolia and other places to hunt. Moreover, the emperors of the Qing dynasty also creatively extended the Manchus' expedition tradition to the areas of the Han people. Both the emperors of the Kanxi and Qianlong visited the area south of the Yangtze River six times. The emperors of the Qing dynasty worried about the officials of the Han people. They set up directing positions in the Tianning Weaving Department, Hangzhou Weaving Department, and Suzhou Weaving Department in southern China. These departments helped the royals manage the tribute of silks, satin, and clothing, but in fact, these directors were spying for the emperors. Like Cao Xueqin, the author of A Dream of Red Mansions, his grandfather and father both served as director of Tianning Weaving Department. During his first six visits to southern China, Kanxi Emperor lived in Cao's home five times. In addition, the Manchu rulers also used a lot of policies and methods to assimilate and infiltrate the Central Plains, such as using the Literary Inquisition and the compilation of the Kanxi Dictionary. They also forced all male citizens to wear Manchu-style pigtails, which meant that all men had to shave the front of their heads, leaving only hair on top and wearing it in a ponytail. We can see that the Qing dynasty inherited and combined various bits of ruling wisdom from the Lao dynasty. In addition, the Qing dynasty also emphasized the concept of unification. Emperors Kanxi, Yongzheng, and Qianlong all loved to use the phrase great unification in their edicts. This was in sharp contrast to the Ming dynasty's emphasis on distinguishing between Huaxia and barbarians, as well as the Yuan dynasty's four social classes. The Yongzheng emperor once said, since ancient times, China's been a so-called unified country, but in fact, it's just the Central Plains, which was not very large. Anybody outside that region without any preference for the Central Dynasties, they would be called barbarians. For example, Hunan and Hubei were called the Land of Barbarians. But can they still be considered this way? Of course not. Since the Qing Dynasty was founded, remote tribes in Mongolia and Tibet have been included in the territory. The country's territorial development is a great fortune for the Chinese people. There should be no distinguishing between Huaxia or Han or even barbarians. Many historians agree that the greatest contribution of the Qing Dynasty was determining the territory of modern China. Let's look at history. Even though the Han and Tang Dynasties set up some protectorate and sent troops in the western regions, 
The time for the Western regions under control of the Central Plains regimes was relatively short, compared with China's thousands of years developing history. And we know that the largest empire in human history, the Mongol Yuan, also ruled the Western regions, and even much farther. But the organizational structure of the Mongol Empire was too loose, failing to make much of an impact on history. Only the Qing Dynasty was able to formulate policies to rule the country successfully and consolidate such a huge empire. According to statistics, during most of the unification period, China's effective jurisdiction was less than 4 million square kilometers, only half of the United States today. During the last years of the Qing Dynasty, despite part of its territory being taken by Russia and Japan, it still covered nearly 11 million square kilometers. Therefore, the Republic of China, and then People's Republic of China, inherited a large territory from the Qing Dynasty, far bigger than that of the Ming Dynasty. Did you know that a heavy rain was responsible for the demise of a dynasty during which the Great Wall was built? Italian merchant and explorer Marco Polo finished his masterpiece about China in prison. An emperor proclaimed African giraffes as magical Chinese unicorns, Qilin. Follow the podcast, Stuff You Missed in Chinese History, to learn more fun facts during the past few thousand years in this country with Patrick Flannery. Well, that's all for this episode of Stuff You Missed in Chinese History. Thank you for listening. In our next episode, we will talk about the story of George McCartney, first Earl McCartney, a British statesman who refused to kowtow to the Qianlong Emperor. I'm Patrick Flannery. See you next time. Special thanks go out to Sanlian Zhongdu for their help in creating the content for this show. If you like the podcast, please give us a rating and be sure to subscribe wherever you listen. 